0: Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. We are officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, and this is already episode 105. So, thanks for joining us. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a summary of the seminar that we just put on our first ever Rec Poker training seminar, and that's why this episode is a day later than normal. Uh, I wanted to go through the seminar and actually uh, give you some highlights from that for those of you who missed it, and maybe a little summary for those of you who were there as well. Uh, fantastic first seminar. I uh, had about 25 people in attendance and just some great discussion. So it's really about the perfect size and some great stuff that came out of that. So I'm excited to share that. Also, I've continued to noodle the, uh, the pre-flop uh, opening ranges uh, for early in a tournament. Uh, I think... Uh, A a lot of good feedback from the last few sessions, but also some people saying I thought you were trying to make it easier and you made it harder so as I've been playing with this um, this approach I've been utilizing it in tournaments and trying to say, how can I simplify this even further? And so I think today uh, I've actually done it. I've certainly simplified it. Uh, the question is, is it as robust? Is it as um, as usable and as as theoretically uh, appropriate? But I think it's it's a much easier approach that then can be built on. So I'm going to quickly touch on that at the end of this episode as well. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, first of all, the seminar, again, a great time. Thanks for those of you who turned out. Uh, when you do something for the first time, and I've had many things that I've launched over the years from nonprofit humanitarian efforts uh, to non other nonprofit organizations to seminars to anything else, you never know how many people are going to show up. And so I felt really encouraged and supported. It was around 20, 25 people or so that that totally showed up. Uh, Andy Kaplan, Brad Olson, Chris Gorton, Chris Nelson, Dave Barker, Derek Smith, Jack Burke, Jack LaRoe, Jason Zilmer, Jennifer Nelson, Jill Burke, John Somsky, Julie Porter, Chris Hall, Matt Hamilton, Rob Washam, Stacey Nelson, Taylor Moss, Vicki Zell. Thank you all so much. If I missed anybody, I am super sorry. But uh, fantastic. Great time. Thank you so much. Uh, key takeaways from the seminar, for those of you who missed it, uh, the, the seminar was primarily grounded in a video from the Solve for Why Academy. It was Matt Hunt was the instructor for the video, and he called it Anatomy of an MTT. And he really stepped back and took a high-level look at what's going on at the different phases of a tournament and how should we be thinking about tournament in its different phases, about uh, which elements we give more weight to. And that was kind of the overall approach. And so obviously in this, uh, this episode, I can't give you everything, Uh, but I want to give you a high-level view because it was just such good stuff. Um, The first thing Matt really talked about was the three strategic incentives that are involved in playing a tournament. Now, obviously, you have chip expected value, those sorts of decisions. He kind of took that out of the equation, recognizing that's always part of the decision is what's our chip EV, but there's also three strategic incentives that you need to adjust how much weight you give to those regardless, uh, depending on where you are in the tournament. And this is really what separates tournament poker from cash uh, playing cash uh, because you actually have to think about where you are in the tournament and it should adjust your decisions. So the three strategic incentives um, are the volatility incentive, which means at different phases of a tr- the tournament, you should be more or less incented to add volatility to your play. There are some parts of the tournament where volatility is welcomed and even encouraged. And there's other parts where volatility is discouraged or is actually a a bad strategic thing to introduce. So we talked about that. ICM is another strategy and incentive that you need to consider that adjusts over the time over different phases of the tournament. And also the consideration for your future skill edge. Uh, Thinking about uh, what is your skill edge, for the rest of the tournament. How likely is your, uh, your skill edge uh, going to contribute to uh, your success in the rest of the tournament? And that should be considered uh, with, with high regard in some phases of the tournament and other parts of the tournament, that's not really a factor. So we talked about those are the three things, the volatility, ICM, and future skill edge incentive. And then Matt broke down the tournament into uh, what he called six different phases. And he looked at what is our primary goal in each of those six phases. And then based on that goal, we talked about, well, how do these three strategic initiatives fit in to each of those phases, into each of those goals, and how should it impact our decisions? So the six phases of a tournament... He called uh, the preservation phase. This is phase one. And the goal here is really just chip up with minimal risk. The second phase is expansion. And here the goal is to try to build a stack so that we are able to then put pressure on the bubble when the bubble comes. The third phase is the bubble. And here our, our goal really depends on our stack size and our position. Uh, so in some cases, we're, we're for a super short stack, um, we, we, we have one sort of approach. If we're a big stack, we have another sort of approach. But in either case, uh, we're actually trying to manage uh, the volatility disincentive. In other words, uh, there, there's not an incentive to introduce a lot of volatility on the bubble because if you're a short stack, you want to try to survive. But you can leverage that as the big stack, knowing that people just want to survive, knowing that the medium stacks don't want to put their cash at risk. And so you can play more aggressively. But either way, the goal is to uh, look at how is the volatility disincentive impacting everybody and then taking the appropriate strategy and exploiting uh, where it makes sense. So the fourth phase, uh, he recalls the consolidation phase. And here the goal is to build a stack that can then make a deep run. Uh, And then the fifth phase is leveraging. And here at this point, the goal is to accumulate a stack so that we can leverage that against other stacks. And then the final phase is closing it out. And the goal here, of course, is to acquire every chip and win. So if we look at each of those six phases and we look at those three strategic initiatives, you can see that uh, those initiatives should be given different weight depending on the phase that we're in. And so I'm gonna quickly go through this and again, uh, the, you know, this we spent an hour and a half on this in the seminar, uh, but in the preservation phase where the goal is to chip up with minimal risk, really there's a very low volatility incentive. In other words, we do not want to introduce volatility. We want to play a low volatility game. And at that phase, there's also no ICM implications at all either. And at that phase... Uh, We really want to consider our future skill edge. We don't want to risk ourselves in marginal spots knowing that over the long run we think we can outplay our opponents. So the the preservation phase is really about trying to chip up with minimal risk, uh, reducing our volatility, and we talked a bit about uh, the difference between volatility and variance. Variance is that luck piece that's really embedded in the game itself. It's who gets which cards, who gets good cards, who hits the river, who hits the flop. Those sorts of things are things we cannot control. They're just an embedded part of the game. That's variance. Volatility is not variance. Volatility is really the extent to which we play uh, pots, either both frequency of pots and magnitude of pots, that allow our chip stack to swing more or less. So if you were to look at a graph of your chip stack over an entire tournament, playing a low volatility approach would have just small ups and downs throughout, generally. Playing a high volatility approach would have higher spikes and valleys. So what Matt is saying is during this first phase, the preservation phase, the goal is to play a low volatility approach. Well, how do you do that? You can do that through playing less pots, being more selective with your opening hands. You can do it through maybe some checkbacks rather than raises. Uh, you can do it with uh, pot control in terms of size of betting. Uh, you could, you know, you could reduce, you know, how large you're making your bets. So there's some ways that you can reduce volatility, but that's the goal during phase one, and that's that's what I've been talking about with my opening hand ranges. So as we've talked about those, I'm always referring in those situations to this phase one uh, situation where we want to play a low volatility approach. The second phase is. Uh, now the expansion phase. Here the goal is actually to try to build a stack because it is so critically important to build a stack during this phase so that we have chips so that we can pressure the bubble. Uh, We all know that um, you can really chip up during the bubble phase. So we want to be on the side of that bubble where we are able to put the pressure on our opponent so that we can get more pots, we can accumulate more chips. So we need chips to be able to do that. So the expansion phase is all about building a stack to apply pressure. Well, in terms of those three strategic incentives, this means we need to start being willing to introduce volatility into our game. So as we hit this phase, we're willing to play a little bit more volatile. The ICM implications have kind of started, but they're still really not uh, they're still really not a major factor in our decisions, not until we hit the bubble. So at this point in and, and our future skill edge, we're still considering that. How do we, How do we um, consider and how do we factor into the fact that we could probably outplay our opponents the rest of the tournament, but it's a little bit less of a factor as we are willing to take on more volatility. So really, the key shift from preservation to expansion is introducing volatility uh, into our play. And again, that doesn't mean you have to start firing every flop. That doesn't mean you have to start firing every, every, everything. Um, it just means we start introducing and welcoming a bit more volatility into our game, which is sort of the reverse of the things that I mentioned about before. We could start three betting more. We could start playing bigger pots, that sort of thing. And one of, the, one of the discussions came up about, uh, well, when does that start? How do we know when we should be moving from uh, preservation to expansion? And I think one of the most obvious ways uh, to recognize that when you're playing an anti-tournament is when the antis kick in. Uh, that's a great uh, kind of a trigger to say, this is maybe the time that we need to start moving from preservation to expansion. Um, if there aren't antis, it's you know maybe the time when the registration ends. It's maybe the time when you realize that people... You're not getting six callers with a three x open. Some of those things where people aren't just playing kind of every hand in every situation. Um, and you could, I guess, look at how many big blinds are left, but I think that's going to vary so much based on tournament. But maybe you know once that uh, average stack gets to twenty to thirty. Uh, Maybe 30 to 50 depending if you're playing a bigger tournament That's maybe the time to start introducing from some volatility start chipping up so that you have the chips when we hit the bubble And that's the third phase is the bubble And as I mentioned it really depends on your stack size how you want to approach this But in terms of our three strategic initiatives at this point The future skill edge really isn't a big thing anymore You're just really trying to make what's the right bubble decision uh, not really thinking about well, how uh, you know, can I take advantage of this person or this field later? That has started to drop off quite a bit. Uh, on the bubble, the ICM implications become huge uh, because at this point, if you bust, you get zero. If you don't bust, you get some level of min cash. And that can be a pretty significant uh, element, especially the bigger the tournament. So the bigger the tournament, the bigger the ICM, uh weight that's given because if it's a 30 dollar tournament people aren't as worried about getting a 43 three uh, dollar minimum cash but if it's a thousand dollar tournament us recreational players are saying well i want to do everything i can to at least get that thousand dollars or the the min cash from that so icm is a bigger impact in those tournaments uh, but i think the biggest i mean certainly the icm increasing is huge uh the the converse of that is your volatility incentive drops almost to zero uh, you, there's really, you really don't want to play a lot of big pots here. And so what that means is if you are in the, if you are the short stack, you're basically folding a lot of stuff unless you are ready to shove because you don't have an incentive to play a lot and a lot of big pots. So you're tightening up quite a bit. If you are a medium stack you can maybe put some pressure on the smaller stacks if nobody else is putting pressure on you. But generally, you just kind of want to preserve your medium stack. You would like to survive the bubble with enough chips that you can get, you know, you can kind of get involved then in and try to really chip up to make a deep run so you're you're kind of disincented to play a lot of pots as well especially big pots because you don't want to do anything stupid and and bust out before the bubble and you want to have chips when the bubble breaks so you're sort of in that spot and so that's why it's so important in the expansion phase to get the chips so that you're the big stack because if you're the big stack on the bubble you should be applying a lot of pressure on folks, especially on those medium stacks because they're the ones that really don't want to play a pot with you because you're the big stack. The short stacks may just say, well, I need to take a shot here. I'm going to try to double up and if I bubble, I bubble, that's fine. But it's those medium stacks that really have no incentive to play pots unless they have an absolute monster. So if you're the big stack, you should be applying pressure Uh, and you can only be the big stack if you're building up during the expansion phase. So... In all cases, there's a disincentive to play uh, pots and play big pots, but if you're the big stack, you should be leveraging that. If you're not leveraging that as a big stack, you are are missing a huge, huge opportunity. And if you're a medium stack and there's a big stack at your table that's not leveraging it, you should take on that role. You should test the waters. You should try to become that person because if it works, if, if everybody else is just tightening up you have an opportunity to steal so many pots. And I know I mentioned this before. I went from like 150,000 to 250,000 uh, in chips on the bubble of a tournament simply by stealing blinds and anties when everybody else uh, just wanted to to survive to the bubble. And and I shared this story as well. Um, at one point I was doing this and I was stealing a, a ton of pots. And then the short sack at the table had like three big blinds and they shoved... Uh, There are three big blinds and I was in the big blind with a monster stack and I folded And people couldn't believe it. They thought there was collusion. They thought it was a horrible play Uh, At the time I didn't justify my play to anybody at the table I didn't feel like I needed to do that But the reason I did that is because I would rather sacrifice that pot and continue to be able to punish the bubble Than to knock that person out if I knock that person out my reign of terror is over, um, I can no longer steal stuff. Now I'm gonna have all these 20 and 30 big blind stacks, mixing it up, getting it in, and I just have to kind of shut it down uh, there. So uh, the last thing I wanted was for the bubble to break. So I actually folded and then was able to continue for about another orbit, uh, taking three or four more pots um, and and adding another 50,000, 60,000 chips to my stack. So. Uh, so that's sort of the advantage. And so you just have to kind of know how you can leverage that. But that's that's the phase of the bubble, and so that's where uh, how you play and how you, um, how you factor in these strategic incentives uh, varies greatly depending on the size of your stack. Okay, so now the bubble breaks, and we all know playing tournament poker, what happens then, sort of the chaos, rains, everything just kind of happens. Everybody's getting their chips in. Uh, well, Matt Hunt calls that the consolidation phase. And our goal here is really to try to build a stack that can make a deep run. So as the chaos breaks out, um, what that means is the ICM implications or incentives go way down. The bubble's broken. In most tournaments, there's quite a few bust outs before the next pay bump. And it's such a gradual pay that there's really no ICM implications. Like if I bust in 90th place, in a big tournament or if i bust in 60th place it's just not much different so i might as well take a shot at trying to chip up so the icm implications right after the bubble uh, in this consolidation phase are very very low uh, my future skill edge is also pretty low still uh, at this point i'm just trying to consolidate i'm not worrying about how i can leverage my current stack to outplay my opponents later my primary goal is to accumulate chips. As people, as all of these stacks are consolidating and people are busting out, I need to make the right decision to try to build a stack now. Uh, it's only when I build a stack that I can actually leverage my future skill edge. So the future skill edge is actually pretty pointless during this phase, because if I don't get the chips, I can't even leverage it anyway. So that's low, but what's super high, what we really need to give a lot of weight to is volatility, and in this consolidation phase, when the when the bubble has broken, this is the time when we need to say, okay, I am willing to take on volatility. Just like in phase two, when we said, this is our expansion phase, I need to take on some volatility, uh, right after the bubble breaks, when we're in the consolidation phase, that's another time where we should be saying, "Okay, I need to welcome some volatility here." That doesn't mean you get crazy. That doesn't mean you start shoving with nine-four offsuit. It doesn't mean any of that. It says I need to welcome volatility, meaning uh, if if it looks like we're heading toward a big pot and I have a legitimate hand, I might maybe I might need to be willing to mix it up there, or I might need to be willing to three bet a little more often, or four bet, or check raise, or some of those other places that we can add volatility. Because this is the time we need to build a stack. If we really want to make a deep run, we can't let the bubble break and then just sit there while everybody else is consolidating stacks. And we're just sitting there with our 30 big blinds, which eventually becomes 20 big blinds, which eventually becomes 15 big blinds. And then everybody else who we had out chipped has either busted or consolidated. And now when you look at who's left, um, depending on who's left, let's say there's 20 people left in the tournament, we have the shortest stack. We didn't do anything wrong. We didn't, you know, we didn't make any big mistakes. But what we did is we didn't allow ourselves to get involved with the volatility. And now we're the short stack with 20 left. And of course, the magic can happen, and we can double up and that sort of thing. But we have not positioned ourselves well to make a deep run in the tournament. So phase four, the consolidation phase, uh, we need to start welcoming volatility back at that point. Okay. So you can see how tournaments are very different. If you think just about volatility, preservation phase, super low incentive to play volatile, a volatile style. Phase two, when we're expanding, high incentive to play volatility. Phase three, the bubble, low incentive for volatility. Phase four, high incentive for volatility. You kind of see this, uh, how, how important it is to really consider where you are in the tournament to, to dictate uh, the decisions that you make at the table. So that's phase four uh, consolidation, and now we're starting to get pretty deep. Uh, and now uh, the reason we want to take advantage of the consolidation phase is that so we have chips, so we have we can leverage that stack against our opponent. And that is phase five of the tournament. Matt Hunt calls leveraging. The goal here is to accumulate a stack that can leverage it, so that we can leverage it against other stacks. So you know the consolidation phase has sort of ended. The chaos has ended. Uh, the welcoming of volatility has ended. We're going to start reducing that volatility incentive. We still have to welcome some, but we are going to reduce that. Uh, the, in, the incentive to play volatil- volatile pots and a volatile style reduces as we get deeper into this fifth phase of the tournament. Uh, but what's increasing now is ICM. Now we're starting to get to a point where uh, the pay jumps matter. And also our future skill edge is going to matter as we get deeper and deeper because um, now we know our opponents well. We've been playing with them for a long time. Eventually, it will be at a final table. We'll know exactly who our opponents are and we can we know uh, if we are going to have a skill edge and we know if we're going to be able to leverage that skill edge. So as we start to hit this leveraging stack, we do want to still take on some volatility, but there's less incentive to actually look for that. Um but we're leveraging. We're we're trying to build that big stack. We're trying to chip up, uh, and then we're going to start using that leverage against our opponents. And same sort of thing that we had in the bubble. Uh, short stacks don't want to bust, but they're willing to put their their chips in a little bit more liberally if they know they're the short stack. They know they're going to have to double up to make a run. Um, so you have to be careful with them. But those middle stacks uh, are the ones that are that we can apply pressure to. Again, if we are that middle stack those big stacks are going to be applying pressure to us. And it puts us in a tough spot. We want to be able to, uh, the ICM implications are growing. So we don't want to bust before those short stacks, but we don't want to sit there and be beaten on and continue to dwindle down. So it puts us in a tough spot when we are those middle stacks. And that's why it's so critical uh, in that consolidation phase to get chips so that we can be the one to apply pressure. We're not the ones that are sitting there just being pressured. So um, that's that's the the uh, impetus for building a stack but in that leveraging phase That's what's going on a lot of leveraging at least what should be happening The big stacks should be leveraging their stack against the middle stacks And then finally the final phase is closing it out and the goal here is to acquire every chips every chip And we talk quite a bit about what that looks like Um with that and there's a lot of nuances there between playing eight-handed nine-handed five-handed four-handed heads up all of those things, but uh, at the end of the day, there's a certain level of volatility that we need to accept uh, as we get shorter and shorter uh, in there, as we get you know six-handed, five-handed, four-handed, three-handed. but also the ICM implications are increasing as well. Uh, and so there's an interesting dynamic. One of the things to think about is these three strategic initiatives are not are sometimes in competition with each other. I mean, sometimes there is a there's a high regard that we should be giving ICM. In other words, we should be, you know, thinking about the next pay pay jumps and giving that a high amount of weight. Yet we're also in a phase where we should be welcoming volatility. Well, those are competing interests, so we have to consider how much weight do we give each of those when we have a decision with, you know, with a big draw for all of our chips. Uh, and I think that's just part of poker, and it's consistent with every other decision that I think we make. Uh, we've talked about in the podcast where. Uh, often there, there's all these considerations that we should be uh, taking under advisement when we're making decisions, uh, and sometimes they're in conflict with each other. There are situations that we're in where, boy, there's a there's a high incentive to re-raise somebody because they're a very loose opener, and we should probably be re-raising them. But there's also uh, you know a high incentive to fold because of the situation in the tournament or our chip stack or whatever. So you have to sort of um, manage those things when there's multiple factors that seem to be conflicting. Uh, It's pretty rare when you have a decision that's 100% obvious. uh, You have to kind of weigh all of that out. So that summary was a little bit longer than I wanted it to be. I didn't realize how many words I'd have to put behind that, but uh, it was a fantastic uh, video. uh, And I will be doing uh, more seminars and I think one of the things I'd really love to do is do these private seminars, to do this exact same seminar, but for your group, uh, whether you have a home game, uh, if you're in some geographic area and you can think you can gather you know, 10, 20 people together to, to do this, I'm willing to travel and put on this seminar. I can't just provide you the content because it's premium content for solve for Why, but we do have authority to be able to show this to these groups. Uh, and so I'm happy to travel to do that, Um, so feel free to reach out to me if that's something you want to do. Uh, We can do just this video and have some conversation, or we can do some other things as well. I know a lot of feedback from the seminar was, man, let's get together and play and talk about our hands, and so uh, I'd love to be a part of that as well. Uh, The other uh, main video that we showed during this was uh, uh, about 20 minutes of the Poker Out Loud um, (laughs) uh, video, which is something else Saul for Why does, where Matt and Christian Soto, Jordan Young... Uh, Jack, Nick, some of these guys from solve for y um, play with these noise-canceling headphones, and they talk about their thought process as they're playing this cash game. So it wasn't a tournament. It was a cash game, and these guys all know each other, and they're all world-class players. So the dynamics weren't exactly perfect, uh, but it was interesting to hear some of their thought processes as they were making plays. You know, boy, I know I know Berkey's going to be defending a lot of his buttons, so I have to be more selective and have a good you know, range construction to be able to open here. and and so a lot of interesting things. Uh, I think the the feedback was kind of mixed. I think largely it was entertainment more than anything. But there were some really good, I thought thought processes these guys were following that were actually pretty insightful, especially around thinking ahead. Um you know, people are especially this this Jack, one of the players, he would talk about, well, if I do this, then, I have to be prepared to do this on the turn in the river. Or I want to make this a two-street game. I'm going to check back here and just turn this into a bluff catcher. Some of those sorts of things, uh, because he knows you know, his opponent was going to be you know, check-raising a lot in this spot, and he doesn't want to be put in that situation. So some really good stuff there. I thought it was fascinating, um, but kind of mixed feedback. So we'll see how that how we use that in seminars going forward. Uh, people either loved it or they were kind of like, yeah, it was good, but it didn't add a ton of value. Uh, but to me it was, it was was pretty impressive, super intriguing and if nothing else kind of fascinating (laughs) there. Uh, and then the only other part of the seminar I wanted to bring up was uh, in the first session, we actually had some time to talk a little bit about, uh, three betting and we talked quite a bit about the pros and cons of three betting. Uh, and it was a pretty fascinating conversation. I thought super helpful. Uh, one of the things that, that kind of summarized the discussion was uh, Alex Assassinato Fitzgerald had put together some some things that we looked at, and basically his his conclusion after all of his analysis is, you should be 3-betting a lot when people aren't 4-betting you. Uh, that was his final conclusion, that there's so much fold equity, so much value, there's so many positives that come from 3-betting, if you're not going to be getting 4-betting uh, it's a very high-value sort of play. Now, of course, you have to factor into the tournaments we play and how much it costs to 3-bet as a percentage of your stack and all those things, uh, but it was a pretty good uh, discussion. So uh, with that, that's kind of the end of the the summary of the seminar piece. Um, I am going to talk a little bit about those preflop ranges still, but again, if this is something you're interested in, uh, I think there's really good feedback in general from the seminar. So I'm going to be doing some more of these, but I, I'd love your feedback on uh, what you'd want to see and, and t- dates, times, costs, all of those things. That's all super helpful. Uh, I want to thank all the, all the people that showed up. A lot of people showed up in rec poker sweatshirts and hats and patches. And uh, I, I remember seeing at least you know Jack LaRue, Matt Hamilton, Taylor Moss, Stacy Nelson, Brad Olson, Rob Washam. And there's was probably others that I missed that had those things on I should have taken a note but thanks to all of you for kind of repping it but also we continue to see more and more people wearing the patches the sweatshirts the hats uh, in the casino I mean Brian Soja I saw him the other day Stacey Nelson and I were both wearing patches when we got through one of the qualifiers Steve Olson uh, Jerry Kniff is out I don't know where he is Choctaw or something he's wearing the patch Uh, Um, I know Darren Peasley had it on again, Chad McVean. Uh, thanks to all you guys. It's fun to see all you guys repping, repping the brand. And I appreciate that. It's very humbling. And I, and I don't take for granted the trust, uh, that you put in me and the brand, uh, to be able to, uh, wear that, uh, with confidence. So thanks for that. Um. All right, Uh, I'm saying a lot of words, but this is what I do, I guess. You guys gave me permission to talk, so I'm going to talk. As an introvert, I need permission to talk, and I guess you have no option but to listen or to shut me off. So I'll keep talking, but I do want to chat a little bit about uh, the preflop ranges that I've been working on over the past several weeks. Uh, it's been so good. And, and thanks to all of you for the feedback. It's just been super helpful. I love where this has gone. Uh, I've had a lot of success at the casino that's really continued. Uh, I ended up going three for three in qualifiers. And I do credit in large part uh, how this pre-flop hand ranging has helped me become more selective um, in this, especially in that phase one Piece, and then I just kind of opened up and changed my approach a little bit uh, as we get into the the expansion phase. But um, this has been super helpful to me, and and I think I've made it more complicated. But I, I still love the approach, and I'm still using it in general. But the way I've now I've, I'm rethinking about this quite a bit in terms of okay, how do we how do we make this applicable in a regular tournament with especially in those situations where. I'm playing daily tournaments and people are talking to me all the time and I love talking to people. So I don't have the ability to focus as much as I could or should on that. Uh, But even for home games, how can I incorporate this in a way that isn't going to take a lot of mental energy, is going to allow me to be social, uh, yet still apply it. And so what I've come up with is this incredibly simplified approach. At least I think it's simplified. Forgive me, I'm a math guy, so you never know. But basically, uh, if you've been following this for any time, you know that it starts with looking at the button and considering the button range two. And then just moving away from the button, two, three, four, five, six. So uh, if you are in the cutoff, just one away from the button, that would be range three. And then keep going. So just start with that, two, three, four, five, six, whatever that is, that's your base range. Now you just know, if I'm in range four, Uh, and, And if it folds around to me, I'm going to raise. That's it. If it folds around to me, I'm going to raise all of my range four. If there are limps in front of me, I'm still going to play that entire range four, but I'm going to polarize it. And I've got, you know, all the math that I did before, all the codes and stuff before was all around delineating how to polarize that range. I think... Uh, the most simplistic way that you can think about this is just saying I'm going to still play that entire range four, but I'm going to polarize it. And in my mind, that just means if I've got a range four hand that I think kind of sucks, I'm going to raise with it. And if I have a range four hand that is pretty awesome, I'm going to raise with that too. And everything else in the middle where it's not really awesome, but it doesn't really suck. I'm just going to call there. Now, over the time, I would recommend working that out so you kind of balance those pretty close. But in the tournaments we play, I just don't think that's as critical. But I do think it's important to uh, to be able to... My phone's ringing now. You guys will get to hear that for a few times. But I do think it's important to actually raise with some crappy hands that you're willing to fold. So the idea there is that you raise with the, the crappy hands, a part of that range, with the intention of folding to a re-raise. And and just being okay with that. So say if you're in range four, that means that um, you know 10, 7 suited is in your in your range. Uh, so I'm just gonna raise over limpers there. And if somebody re raises, I just fold. No big deal. Whatever. Um, and if I have pocket kings, I'm gonna raise. And if they re raise, I'm either gonna call or I'm gonna shove. Um, but it's polarized. And just having that that general construct of saying, I'm still going to play this range, but I'm going to polarize my raising range and then just call with everything else. I think it's super helpful and super easy to apply. And then the other act, if there's a raise in front of me, all I'm going to do is I'm going to increase my base range by three ranges and then polarize that if possible. So if I'm in, if I'm in base range four and somebody raises, I now know, okay, I'm in base range seven So I'm going to need a hand that's at least in range seven. And if it's not, I just fold. And if it is, I can just decide what I'm going to do there, but I can try to polarize it. If it's a hand that, you know, isn't great, I could say, you know, I am going to three bet here with the intention of folding. If it's a hand that's awesome, I'm going to three bet with the intention of getting it all in. If it's somewhere in the middle, I'm just going to call behind. Uh, and if you think about it, if I'm in range seven, I'm already at a pretty good hand. But that that could include Queen Ten of Diamonds. Well, I might want to re-raise Queen Ten of Diamonds. I'm going to three bet with Queen Ten of Diamonds, and if they shove, I just fold. I'm also going to re-raise with uh, pocket Aces, and if they shove, obviously I'll get it in. Uh, anything in the middle there, like, you know, pocket Jacks, that kind of stuff, I might just want to call behind. So that is the end. That's really the the key. That's it. That's the strategy. You still have to know what's in each of those ranges. And I'll kind of come back and summarize that again. But instead of thinking about all these codes and stuff, just think what's my base range. Okay. I'm in base range three. If there's no action to me and my hand is in base range three, I raise. If there's limps in front of me and I'm, my hand is in base range three, I'm going to raise with the awesome hands. And I'm going to raise with the crappy hands that are in that range and just call behind with the rest. If there's a raise in front of me, I'm going to say, well, I'm now in base range six. If my hand is in base range six, I'm gonna raise if I don't love it, and I'm gonna raise if I absolutely love it, and I'm gonna call behind if I don't. That's just this polarizing mentality, and, and the beauty of doing that is then you can get some of those three bets through uh, that, you know, you can pick up pots that you otherwise wouldn't have, but also um, you could get paid then when you have the monster hand because people know that you're willing to do that with less. So that is the general construct of making that decision pre-flop in the preservation phase one of a tournament. Uh, Just to recap, well, what hands are in each of those ranges? Well, if you're in base range two, uh, whatever your base range number is, that's the pairs that are in that range. So base range two is pocket twos are better. So if you're on the button, you're in base range two, pocket twos are better are in that base range. So that's true for all of the positions. If you're in base range nine, it's pocket nines are better. Base range seven, it's pocket sevens are better. So that's how the pairs work. Then you increase that rank by three to know which suited cards are in that range. So if you have suited cards, they both have to be at least three higher than the base range number. So if I'm in the hijack, so I'm in position two, three, four, I'm in base range four. So now my, my base range includes pocket fours or better and any two suited cards that are both at least seven. Okay, so eight, seven, ace, seven, king, seven, 10, seven, all of those are in base range four if they're suited. If they're not suited, it just goes one higher than that, with a minimum that both cards have to be at least ten, so this is the this is the most complicated part. But once you get this part, it's super easy. Uh, so let's say I'm in base range three. I'm in the cutoff. Well, my base range is pocket threes or better, any two suited cards six or better, and any two offsuit cards normally would be seven or better. But remember, we have this constraint that they both have to be at least ten. So any unsuited cards ten or better. If I am in uh, base range five, well, I need pocket fives or better, I need two suited cards eight or better, and I still need two unsuited cards 10 or better. If I'm in base range seven, I need pocket sevens or better, any two suited cards that are at least 10 or higher, and any two offsuit cards that are at least jack or higher. It's gotta be one higher than that those suited cards. So that's how you figure out, that's what's in those ranges there, uh, the only other stipulation would be I've added suited aces to base ranges two and three. So if, if I have a suited ace and I'm in base range two or three, that's also part of uh, that range. So so I think you can really work on this in two parts. One is understanding that formula there to say, well, what hands are in base ranges? And I think you simply just say um, the pairs are there, suited cards that are at least both rank three, high, three or higher than that. Um, those pairs. And then the offsuit ones are at least one higher than those suited cards, but they're at least both 10. That is part of the work. And then the other work is saying, well, what do I do with the, you know, if the action in front of me, if I, if my hand is in the base range and there's no action, I raise. If my hand is in the base range and there's limps, I'm going to raise or call, but my raises are going to be with the awesome hands and the sucky hands. And I'm going to call everything else. If there's a raise in front of me, my base range shifts up by three groups. Then if my hand is still in that base range, it's gonna be polarized again. If it's a, if it's in that range but I don't really love it, I'm gonna raise. If it's in that range and I love it, I'm gonna raise. If it's in that range and I neither love it or hate it, I'm gonna call behind. That is really the new summary. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Obviously, a lot of tweaking can go on to try to balance it perfectly and all those things. But ultimately, that is what it it is coming down to in that situation. So I'd love to hear your feedback on that. I'm going to keep using that. Uh, I'm still waiting to write this up formally until I really kind of fine tune it and get it down there. But hopefully, that's a more applicable, uh, more actionable sort of approach to this versus all of the codes. Uh, but But I think part of the beauty of this that people have enjoyed that I've enjoyed is that you've been with me right along the journey. This isn't looking back and saying, here's what I did. You've week by week, I've been building this, basing it on feedback. So hopefully you've been able to gather my thought process behind this, what I've liked, what I haven't liked, how I've tweaked it. So all of those mathematical things behind it, all of those opening ranges, all the balancing, all the codes, all of those things are the foundation of what's coming up to be hopefully a fairly simple, um, Uh, actionable approach to uh, opening hand ranges early in a tournament and obviously a lot of work to do as far as what do we do out of the blinds what do we do when we hit phase two all of those things but uh, this is the new the new I guess summary of of where we're at so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that so that is it for the content Uh, just a couple of reminders Uh, I'd love to have you go to recpokertraining.com if you haven't signed up to be part of our newsletter do that uh, that's the best way to stay in touch. I'm not going to bog you bog you down with a ton of stuff, but it'll at least give you uh, awareness as to the opportunities that are coming up. And if you sign up for our newsletter. Uh, you'll get a 115 page workbook from Jonathan a little free of charge you'll get a download that you can have and people have loved receiving that so thanks to Jonathan and pokercoaching.com for that but but do that that's the best way to stay connected otherwise just go to recpokertraining.com and just kind of check out the things that are out there uh, a lot of information a lot of things that we have in the works uh, and this is your opportunity to give feedback I mean we're just formulating this thing we're just kind of building this thing uh, we're building up rec poker nation uh, and really my goal is to take all of this great premium content that's out there to synthesize it to curate it to consolidate it and to be able to bring it and make it actionable for us the recreational player without you spending a ton of money i spent a ton of time i'm trying to do all of that for us and then bring it down and summarize it and so the question is what's the best way to take all of that information and bring it to you and uh, I know it's part of that learning styles, but part of that, I think the value that we can bring is to do that in a way that builds community. I think more and more and more, I'm getting feedback from people that are saying, I don't really have people that want to talk poker with me. I want to have this group of people that are kind of at my level, maybe a little bit higher, that I can talk poker with, that I can ask questions with, that I can be honest and authentic about it and say what I'm struggling and and and, just, and celebrate our victories together. And, and I think that's where more and more where we're going with this is to provide content for those of you who want to just consume it on your own but to also provide avenues to make connections and be part of something bigger than yourself, uh, to have people supporting and encouraging you and answering questions and and dialoguing and playing together. So uh, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to keep building. So I'd love to have you be part of that. So um, check out all the training opportunities we have coming up. We've got a a Q&A online player panel on November 29th from 7 to 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, I still don't have the invitation sent out on that, but at this point, I'd say save the date. Uh, That's going to be fantastic. We've got two of the players uh, are playing right now in a day two of a pretty big event here in Minnesota, so that's kind of fun. We're rooting for them, Uh, but it's going to be a great time. But check all of that stuff out. Give me a call if you have any questions, comments, concerns. Uh, The best thing you can do for us right now is... If you're saying, "Man, I want to support Steve and I want to support the Rec Poker crew, but I don't really know the best way how." I'm located in Australia or Canada or all these other places that you guys have have been uh, encouraging me from India. Um, the best things that you can do to really support the Rec Poker podcast and the Rec Poker training that aren't going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, first of all, if you go out to iTunes, if you could uh, like, rate, review, subscribe. All of those things are huge as far as helping us drive more listenership. That would be great. Uh, The second thing that you could do that would be really encouraging is to go to patreon.com and you can check out the different levels. There's different things that you get at different levels. But even just supporting the, the podcast at $1 a month, Obviously, that's not going to change our life, but all of those things are super encouraging uh, and they they allow us, as we consolidate, as we add all the people that are getting involved, they allow us more freedom to, to do more content and those things. Uh, but primarily, that's just a huge encouragement to me. Whenever I see somebody sponsor on patreon.com, it just means a lot to me personally and and I appreciate that. And I think the third thing that you can do is really think about, if you have a group of people that want to learn together, uh, think about having me come in and give a seminar or give you some of this, this premium content that's only available for hundreds of dollars a month I can help share that with you. We can I can help lead and facilitate a discussion around whatever it is that you want to talk about. I'm happy to travel wherever to make you know as long as it makes sense to do this for you, spend a, spend a half a day or a day or two days or whatever, really digging into this stuff. Um, I would love to do that as well. And then finally, the last thing to consider is if you are connected with you know, with a casino or a large home game or whatever, uh, reach out to them, make the connection with me and see maybe there's something that we can do together. I would love to go to a casino and put on a four-hour seminar before a big thing or a two-hour seminar or to lead a discussion before a big tournament or a big tournament weekend or something. I think that would be fantastic. I think it could add a ton of value to the casino, to the player, uh, and I think it would just be a great a great thing to add into a tournament weekend and um, and I think that would be really fun for the large home games. Same sort of thing there. Uh, I'd love to be part of of helping build the Rec Poker Nation and increasing the the number and level of skill of the people that are playing this great game. So uh, I'll stop rambling now. But uh, I think you get the gist of it. I'd love to keep expanding this. Uh, but I'm going to need your help, and we can do this all together. So thanks for considering that. Uh, you can always reach out to me, Steve at recpokertraining.com or through Facebook, Twitter, however else uh, you get this information. All right, uh, that is the end of episode 105. Thanks for joining us, and we will chat with you next week.